Welcome to Right Rising, a podcast from the Center for the Analysis of the Radical Right. I'm your host, Augusta DeLomo. Today, I'm joined by Natalie James, a doctoral candidate in the School of Politics and International Studies at University of Leeds. She's here with us today to talk about the United Kingdom's prevent duty and how it's been used to counter the radical right. Natalie, thanks for being here. Hi, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So, Natalie, for most of our listeners, they may not be familiar with the United Kingdom's prevent duty. Can you tell us what it is and what it does? Yeah, so the prevent duty came out in 2015, but it's part of a broader UK counterterrorism strategy called Contest. Now, this emerged in around about 2003, but was legislated from 2006 onwards. Now, Contest has four main strands. So it has the prepare strand, the prevent strand, the protect strand, and the pursue strand. Prevent kind of became the um, the pillar for Contest, as it were. So that was the main strategy that the government seemed to focus on. Now, Prevent has been in full, been part of uh, the UK's strategy since 2003, but as I say, it legislated in 2006. And Prevent 1, so-called, was around about 06 to 11. Now, that was a predominantly community-based uh, programme. So Contest would, uh, sorry, Prevent would be concerned with going into communities, using community-based initiatives and organisations to try and spot anyone who might be potentially becoming radicalised and to try and prevent that through community-based initiatives. Now, some of them were covert and some of them were overt. Um, and that's kind of where some of the criticism lies, uh, which led to what some people call Prevent 2, so the second phase of Prevent, from around about 2011 onwards. And that was more where the government switched the focus from being around those community-based programmes to being more about this idea of people being vulnerable to extremist and terrorist narratives, so being vulnerable to becoming radicalised. And the focus was therefore placed on what risk people had of being vulnerable and what risks could be prevented. And as part of that, as Prevent then developed, um, the Counterterrorism and Security Act was introduced in 2015. Now, that is the act that then brought in the Prevent Duty, as it were. So this is still around that idea of preventing vulnerability, of preventing risk to extremism and terrorism. But what it did was it mandated the requirement for people to show due regard to preventing people from becoming engaged in those spheres. So essentially, it made it a legal requirement. It made people responsible for spotting that vulnerability and limiting that risk by safeguarding it. Now, what that involved in practice was essentially that any public sector worker became effectively an agent of the state, where it was their responsibility within their working environment within which they came into contact with members of the public, that they should spot any vulnerability, try and then understand if it was potential for radicalisation, and if it was, that they would refer that to a programme called Channel. Now, Channel is essentially sorry, what the government label a multi-agency safeguarding process. So again, using that language of vulnerability, their idea is somebody, say a doctor or a teacher, which is in my case of my research, would see someone who was potentially vulnerable to radicalisation, would refer them into Channel, this multi-agency safeguarding hub, and then Channel would then consider whether or not that person needed support. And essentially what that then meant was they were provided with what the government termed a wraparound package of support. 
So if, for example, that person uh, who was potentially able to become radicalised because of their vulnerability, this agency, this safeguarding hub channel would then say, okay, well, what are those vulnerabilities? It might be that that person is perhaps uh, needs housing. They're um, in a perhaps a fluid situation where they don't have secure housing. They might have, for example, some um, a disability or a mental health concern that is that deems them vulnerable or at risk. Uh, they may also have kind of what the government might term a warped idea um, of uh, foreign affairs or foreign policy. Uh, those sorts of things. There can be in a whole range of things. And what Channel would then do is put into place this wraparound package of support where they say, okay, well, if there's a housing need, then we get the housing agency involved. If there is a um, uh, an educational need, we get the educational sector involved. If there's a social services need, we get them involved, etc., etc. And what Channel basically does is assess whether somebody's vulnerability is just, say, a housing need, in which case it passes it on to the housing uh, agency, or if it does have those multiple different prongs, which might then make someone vulnerable to becoming radicalised. So essentially, it's it's a, a programme that now makes it mandatory that people spot that and then refer it to this channel agency to, to decide if they need support. So essentially, what it means is that counterterrorism has become a responsibility of everyone within the public sector. So it's kind of one of the first of its kind, the policy itself, where it basically is saying that counterterrorism isn't just a measure that the government take. It isn't just a measure for security services, for the police. Actually, what it is now is a measure for everybody in their everyday lives, in their everyday practices, for everybody to prevent people from becoming radicalised and engaged in terrorism and extremism. Thanks for that great overview, Natalie. And I, I really liked one of the phrases that you used to describe this process as everybody now becomes an agent of the state. Like you said, this this prevent duty now asks any public servant to have an active role in counterterrorism, counterextremism in their own communities. And I think we'll get more into some of the responses to this and the application of this in a little bit later in the podcast. But I did want to ask you what motivated the passage of the prevent duty. Was there were there specific events that triggered this, or was it a um, a wider conversation about the state of counterterrorism work and preventative measures in the United Kingdom? Yeah, so essentially a bit of both, and quite frankly, it depends on who you talk to. So a government perspective is, yeah, this kind of response to a shifting environment, a shifting kind of threat, um, the need to protect vulnerability. It was, and, you know, and for some critics, that kind of is essentially the government saying we got it wrong, which in some of their legislation they do. And they say, you know, that previous focus on communities did not work and we need to change that up. And the duty was kind of a response to that. It was a, a way of the government saying, you know, it's not just about looking for certain com- people in certain communities. Actually, it's about preventing everyone from becoming engaged in any form of extremism and terrorism, which is the language that they use. So from their perspective, it was about, at its core, protecting everyone's vulnerability. And it was in response to the need to do that. From a critic's perspective, it was about expanding this kind of idea of data capture, this securitization, 
particularly of Muslim communities who had been largely impacted by the earlier iterations of Prevent, which I'm sure we'll get into at some point. But essentially, a lot of critics said that actually, hang on a minute, this is just an extension of the state. This is just the state wanting to responsibilize, to securitize not only the people who were targeted by the policy, but those who were now legally mandated to enforce it as well. Now, slight nuance in my own research is from some people, they said it was kind of a response to the um, the events at the time, particularly around the, after the Arab Spring uh, with the rise of Daesh um, and people, kind of a recognition from security services as well that there was a shift in not the not necessarily the ideology, but the individuals who were becoming engaged in that ideology. One of my participants talks about this idea that previously in earlier iterations of prevent people that they were looking for were the individuals who on their own were becoming radicalised in quite uh, isolated spaces, in kind of online forums, and it was individuals who were becoming radicalised and going off to engage in matters of terrorism and extremism but what the prevent duty kind of responded to was actually a shift in that where powerful propaganda and media outlets were really selling this idea of a statehood and families being able to respond to that and engage in that and for one of my participants actually the duty came in in response to that shift where it wasn't individuals going anymore but it was entire families and those families shifting their own families off to uh, Iraq or Syria. Um, for others, it was simply about bringing this consistency of approach in. So this idea that, you know, if we're going to protect against vulnerability, let's make sure everyone's protecting all the ty- different types of vulnerability and let's make sure that they're doing that consistently. So really, its instigation is is quite heavily contested. It depends on who you speak to, especially depending on if you're a critic or an advocate of prevent. But essentially what we can kind of take from it is that there was a recognition, whether or not that wants to be, uh, that needs to be deconstructed or not is another matter, but there was a recognition that there was a shift in the way that people were becoming radicalised. There was, And there was also a need to shift away from this individual community basis to addressing all forms of extremism and ergo addressing potentially everyone's potential vulnerability. I think that was a really fantastic summary of a really complex array of questions about how do you prevent extremism. Um, I really appreciate that you brought up the point about how this community approach has really disproportionately targeted Muslim communities. And so it's really interesting to trace how the UK's legislation on this has changed as well. And this question of social services and how we should deploy social services to counter extremism in all its forms is something that I think more and more people are starting to reconcile and grapple with as we really start to think about what causes social ills and social unrest in our societies. So now that we've talked through what the prevent duty is and the beginnings of the origins of the prevent duty, really, what have you seen from your research has been the response from the prevent duty from various groups in the United Kingdom? So thinking about communities that are overly police, perhaps like Muslim communities, but also security services, what are, and even the mainstream media, what do you think people have responded to the prevent duty with? Yeah, I mean, again, it's, it's a complete mixed bag. Um, if you're talking about the early years when prevent, when the, the duty, sorry, first came in around 2015, 16, 
there was real concerns about it, really was. And a lot of that stemmed back to that disproportionality around Muslim communities. You know, you were effectively, they were, the government was seen to be mandating to making a legal requirement for people to refer this same policy to really entrench in this long-standing policy where effectively it was Muslim communities who were massively impacted by this. You know, and it's been evidenced in numerous studies where the disproportionality towards Muslim individuals, you know, has, has had absolutely dire consequences. And there was a real fear that this was only going to entrench that. It was only going to make it worse. So there was huge concern around that. On the other end of the spectrum, there was, you know, there was kind of a, a, an almost welcome approach where people were kind of happy that the government had recognised that there was this need to shift towards all forms of extremism and terrorism. Um, but then there was many in the middle who were concerned about whether that would actually come to fruition. Would this kind of shift where um, especially public sector workers who aren't trained in this, who aren't um, radicalization experts or extremist experts? Yeah, I think that's such a critical point. You know, you're asking people to become experts on something that you know, that's not in their job description is enforcing the prevent duty. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And that was, you know, it was just another thing to add to the list of why people were so genuinely concerned about this. Over the last couple of years, we've kind of seen that what's called the fear of a chilling effect um, around, particularly within educational spaces, which is where my research is based, around the potential for this to have a chilling effect on academic freedom, on uh, people's ability to enact the duty professionally, but also, you know, to, to not have a, a dire impact on the, the communities and the individuals with which this policy was concerned with. Um, but there has, in the last few couple of years, been a slight shift where, uh, as, you know, as a result of research that's coming out, where we're seeing that that's not entirely been the case. There are pockets where that, of course, happens, and that, of course, that isn't hugely problematic um but that people are able to sort of engage with the duty on levels that we didn't anticipate at the beginning of this so where there was those real concerns around criticism and then there was those who were really advocating and pushing forward for it we're almost seeing a bit of a meet in the middle with the research that's coming through now which is kind of where my research fits quite nicely in. Let's uh, keep going then about your research. So as I would call you an expert on the prevent duty, what questions did you have when you began your research? Uh, So I'm sure as you can imagine, my biggest concern was, okay, if these people have this requirement, this legal duty to spot potential vulnerability to radicalization and refer that, who is it that they're referring? You know, have these disproportionate impacts of the policies in its earlier iterations in prevent one and prevent two have they followed through in the prevent duty so my biggest concern when i began the research was is this is there still a disproportionate impact essentially on muslim individuals the context that i looked in came from a more personal angle so when i was started thinking about the research um a family member actually said to me oh yeah i know about the prevent duty hang on how on earth do you know about the prevent duty? <laughs> exactly. You can imagine my face at the time. Um, and they responded and said, yeah, I'm now mandated to do it. And I just couldn't understand it at the time. I couldn't get my head around this person who, no disrespect to them as a family member, but I could not get my head around their capacity 
to spot vulnerability to radicalization and refer that without any bias, but also without any expertise, how on earth would they do that? So that's kind of where my research began with this concern around an increasing focus and, and on the everyday account of terrorism and how that impacted on communities which had already been massively disproportionately impacted. But then on the other side of it, how on earth people who weren't experts were meant to then spot that? I think those two those two questions that you were wrestling with, I think are the right questions to be asking about these issues. And I think a lot about when you were talking about these questions of how are people possibly trained to refer people to the right resources, but also how are they choosing to identify uh, people who are, you know, quote unquote, vulnerable to radicalization. I think a lot about the, you know, the over-policing, the, uh, the over, um, punishing of children, specifically black and brown children in American schools. You know, there's so many questions of, of bias and reporting that, that go into these kind of duties. So from your research, what are your, what were the major findings that came out of your study? So, which is where some of this um, ambiguity came, comes from that I was earlier talking about. It was strange. I started off and, and the research is very much based in a critical um, perspective as well. But I very much started off from that critical voice thinking I know what I'm going to find here I'm going to find that there is a disproportionate impact against Muslim students and that there's bias that is you know emanating from all of the experiences that I collect um honestly it wasn't quite as straightforward as that um there is no easy right or wrong yes or no answer with the findings that I got came across um and I'll kind of I think I'll I'll have a go at covering some of those main findings and we will come back to that disproportionality and see why I'm saying that it's quite ambiguous and it's not quite as straightforward as original originally I thought it would be but essentially what I found was that this narrative of vulnerability actually sat really well in education institutions it fitted with their existing discourses it embedded well with their existing practices you know educationalists have always protected against vulnerability you know whether that's against um, child sexual exploitation whether that's against drugs or crime or gangs any of those things they've always done this so vulnerability was something that they were very very much used to already so that kind of narrative fit really really well and actually what i found which is in line with quite a lot of the the literature that's coming out in the sort of the, the, the last 12 to a 24 months and that's emerging at the moment is that in this narrative of vulnerability preventive duty was actually really well accepted within education institutions it was uh, it fit into their existing practices it worked with their narratives that they had and it was just seen as an extension of their existing responsibilities so in that case it was a bit of a shock really that you know what i thought would be so different from their existing practices was actually quite well embedded now, of course, there's nuances in that and there's experiences where people didn't quite have that level of acceptance. But on the whole, the vast majority did understand or did kind of accept that the duty is just an extension of our safeguarding practices against vulnerability. So in that case, then, this process of referral that I earlier mentioned around uh, referring into channel, that mechanism was therefore already already embedded in institutions. They were already used to spotting something they were concerned with 
passing it up the channel within the institution and then passing it out to those external institutions or agencies. That, again, was an existing practice. So in that sense, the prevent duty didn't really offer anything much different there. However, I will caveat that as well by saying that there are a few places where that doesn't quite work. So in one instance, for example, there was uh, a lot more difficulty and um, more challenges faced in terms of prevent duty when it came to engaging with those external mechanisms. And that largely was because in the case of the prevent duty, unlike any other form of vulnerability, a lot of the individuals who I spoke to found that measuring the level of threshold for what warrants, what constitutes a referral, was actually much more difficult to determine in cases of radicalisation. And that was because of lack of knowledge, you know, bias, kind of the overarching media narratives, but also because of the sheer sense that basically they felt that the systems were overwhelmed as well. You know, a third of the referrals within the uh, prevent system come from the education sector. And there was a feeling that there was quite a lot going out, not necessarily all of it perhaps meeting the thresholds that prevent agency felt was was kind of in place versus what these safeguarding um, officers felt was 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 kind of their threshold. So the two weren't necessarily always meeting up. From a teaching perspective, um, there was kind of concern in terms of referral over whether or not that bias, that overarching bias, did influence what they were, who they were referring, and what they were seeing as potentially vulnerability to to uh, radicalization. And then on a student level the research finds that actually there's, that was quite problematic. So whilst they accepted this idea that people needed safeguarding who were vulnerable, for them, identifying that was really concerning, where essentially a lot of it surrounded the fear of the consequences of doing so. So the fear for the individual, what might happen to them, but also the fear for themselves. You know, what, what's going to happen to me if I refer someone and either I'm wrong Either they find out that I've referred them, or if I do refer them, you know, is there any is there going to be any comeback on me? And students were really worried about that. So even though they all accepted and they all kind of understood that prevent was about safeguarding vulnerability, when it came to those practices of referral, that might be something that was familiar to them. But actually, in the case of the duty, it was something that had some you know real considerations that they had to take into their decision as to whether or not to participate in that. And then one of the other aspects of it, which I've not mentioned yet, is around this idea of British values. So with the prevent duty came not only this process of referral, but within education institutions specifically, was this requirement to embed and promote the idea of British values. Now, I've wrote about this for Carr before, uh, and this notion that um, values such as democracy, liberty, um, and which is just, you know, it says everything that I can't even remember what the four of them are off the top of my head all the time. <laughs> so it, it says exactly what they are. But these values are basically what a lot of my participants said were human values, universal values. They're not specifically British. But with this label of British came this notion of Britishness. Who can be British? Who can hold these values? And the way that this was kind of introduced in line with extremism and radical and terrorism, so i.e., you know, refer those who you think are extremists or who you think are vulnerable to becoming extremists or terrorists, 
but at the same time promote a British idea of values. The two were quite challenging with one another, which is one of the things I'll want to pick up on in later research as I develop this idea. But for a lot of people, that sense of having to install a sense of Britishness alongside a need to counter extremist and terrorist ideologies through referring vulnerability really presented a challenge where actually are we preventing all forms of extremism and terrorism here or are we just preventing Islamist inspired because for a lot of the participants the far right actually was upheld their kind of ideas and narratives were upheld by this sense of Britishness so it was a real interesting and complex paradox where you've got teachers who are required to refer people, but also required to instill a sense of Britishness that they felt fed into a far-right ideology. And this is kind of one of the key things that comes out, is that underpinning all of these concerns was this idea that ultimately the prevent duty was still informed by those earlier iterations and those earlier concerns around the securitization of Islam and the securitization of Muslim communities. And until that was properly challenged, that the duty and any sort of any program that came after it was always going to be predominantly based on preventing Islamist forms of extremism and terrorism. Because you've got that history there, people are biased as a result of it, and their attempts to try and include all forms of terrorism and extremism, you know, were recognised by people, don't get me wrong, and, and in some cases people were doing a really good job at trying to integrate them. But because of this wider discourse, their efforts were continuously undermined. And that sense of Britishness that came through British values only served to emanate that, only served to enhance that kind of narrative around Islamist-inspired terrorism that was there. And it was a real complex interplay of experiences that were going on within the research. And and I hope I've done it justice in uh, explaining how that played between this notion of referral and British values but it essentially meant that they just didn't feel that the far right were included in this idea of preventing all forms of extremism and terrorism when you just had this overarching narrative of of prejudice against Muslims and Islam. No I think Nellie I mean I think you summed up your findings incredibly well and I think you really captured the complexity of what people are being asked to do under the prevent duty and all of the different ways that this can go awry. I mean, the contrast that you're showing, you're setting up between educators who a lot of times are very comfortable reporting and finding different services for their students, trying to help them, you know, at a baseline level, you have this idea that educators want to make their students' lives better and they're being put in these impossible situations. I think the point that you drew out about what happens when you become a mandatory reporter, there's concerns for what happens to their students once they've reported them into the system and how all of this gets caught up in these ideas of Britishness and these ideas about who fits, as you said, who counts as British and what kinds of extremism counts in this definition. I think all of that is so important to contextualize how the prevent duty not only was created, but how it is deployed now. And how do you think your research should impact the way that we think about and use the prevent duty moving forward? Yeah, I think, you know, in that there's a real need to recognize as well that policy isn't policy isn't just policy you know 
policy becomes enacted, it becomes lived, it becomes experienced, it becomes what that person makes of it. Now, and when I say that, that doesn't, you know, that, as you heard with the findings, it doesn't take away from the fact that there are serious issues here underpinning the policy around those stigmatizations and, and, you know, who it is that the policy encourages people to effectively try and spot. There are real issues with that. But in that, all there is also the recognition that in, in educators spotting these issues, they're doing a really, really difficult, complex, but also really admirable role in trying to negotiate those difficult discourses that they are surrounded by. And we need to recognise the, the efforts made by them, but also the limitations that surround them. And if the prevention duty is going to continue, which I have, you know, I have no question that it will. It's, I think it's a policy that is here to stay for the long run. But if it is, government, security agencies, whomever, the, even, you know, down to the ground level of these people who are implementing it, need to recognise that individuals really do play a huge role in how the prevent duty becomes enacted, in how it becomes employed in these instances, and not just in education instances, but across the public sector. They play a really, really critical role. And it is about that person being potentially knowledgeable or enough or potentially um, yeah, able to fulfil that role. But it's also about recognising the huge limitations that are placed on them in doing that. You know, these people have got all the things that they need to do. There's curriculums they need to teach. There's, you know, there's illnesses they need to spot if they're in the health profession. This is an extremely, extremely small part of their role. But if you're going to make it mandatory, by God, please make them, you know, prepare them enough to be able to do that. Give them the tools that they require in order to negotiate and manage these really complex situations and contexts that they find themselves in, where we as researchers who've spent years and years engaging with this discourse still have trouble, you know, deconstructing it and engaging with it. And let's not ask them to do that but let's ask ourselves what we could do to help them understand and negotiate and and try and navigate those discourses that really are so embedded in what has become an everyday practice for these individuals. Thanks so much for that, Natalie. And I think that's such an important note to end on because it's not just policy, as you said, it's lived experiences and lived actions for many people who are trying to improve the communities that they live in. I think there's a real push for people to be accountable to the individuals in their community. I think there's a real push from education. I'm thinking about the United States context on questions of sexual assault and racism and really having mechanisms so people can make changes in their community. But if there's not the right kinds of training and I think even more importantly, transparency about what we can actually do to help people once they've been, you know, reported to use the the language of the prevent duty, it becomes really murky and, and very difficult for people to feel like they can use this mandatory reporting in a way that's actually making their communities better. So I wanted to thank you again for joining us today. And um, for our listeners, can they find your work online? Where can they connect with you to hear more about the kinds of work that you're doing? Yeah, so they can find, um, I've just got a chapter published in a book which has come out, The Prevent Duty in Education. It's open access so anyone can get their hands on it. Um, and uh, one of my chapters, 
one of the chapters in there, sorry, is um, based on my research, a little snapshot of it. Um, but they can grab me uh, on any of the blog posts that we do and I'll advertise any of my other work through uh, CAR, where I am now the head of the counter-extremism research unit. So make sure you head over to CAR's website and you can get any of my posts on there. Um, and hopefully some more publications coming out uh, around this research itself and the implications that it's got on education, on prevent, and going into future research on the way the far right are engaged in this as well. Awesome. Thank you again, Natalie, for joining us. Thanks so much. This has been another episode of Right Rising, a podcast from the Center for the Analysis of the Radical Right. We'll see you next time. <laughs>